May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This morning and last week, we've read our epistle lessons from the first epistle of St. Peter. And actually, if you do the daily worship of the prayer book, what we call the daily offices, then you discover that the lectionary or that system or table which tells us what parts of the Bible to read every day, it has us spend most of our time since Easter reading the first epistle of St. Peter. And that makes sense because Easter is about our new life in Christ. It's about looking at life in a different way with a different focus on things because of that new life. And that's what Peter's first epistle sort of does. And it's hard to take the whole of Peter and to put it into one brief sermon. But if I were to try, then I might be able to point to the second chapter from whence we had our epistle lesson these past two weeks. So that's where we're going to spend our time for the next 15 minutes. If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, then I encourage you to go ahead and get those opened up to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll walk through a couple of those verses. And if you're not sure where that is, it's right near the end of the Bible. Now, while you're doing that, let me just fill you in a little bit on the historical context of Peter's letter. In Acts chapter 8, we're told of a, dia- a diaspora, or a diaspora, depending on how you want to pronounce it, or a dispersion, a-, a scattering. It was the result of the persecution under the Apostle Paul before his conversion. When people like Saul, a.k.a. Apostle Paul, and the other Jewish leaders sought to kill the converted Christians in Jerusalem, they scattered out into the surrounding areas. And it's kind of ironic. And it wasn't something that I've ever really thought about until earlier this week when I was working on this. But in God's infinite wisdom, in God's funny way of doing and accomplishing things, it was because of Paul's own persecution and driving away of the Christians that actually helped him witness the most after he was converted. You see... As the Christians scattered, Acts tells us that they went, spreading the truth of Christ wherever they went. And so Paul ends up building on their initial witness and presence as he went from place to place to place as a missionary. In a backward sort of way, it was Paul's scattering that actually helped him gather. But it wasn't just persecution from Saul and the Jews. It was also the persecution of the Romans. Jew and Christian came under great persecution from Rome. And the Romans' brutal type of persecution kept growing. So Peter, as he writes his epistle, repeatedly refers to his listeners as pilgrims, as sojourners, as aliens, as the exiled. And this was all a direct reference to their physical dispersion to the current situation in which they found themselves. And of course, there's also a a spiritual allegory with it. But in the process of that, he's trying to comfort them. He's trying to strengthen them. And he's trying to provide them with some sort of encouragement. 
And Peter does this by presenting two main principles to help them in their situation. The first is, who you are matters. And the second is, what you do matters. So let's see how Peter does this. In the first half of chapter 2, Peter says, who you are matters. And take a look at verse 9 with me. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this makes sense as Peter is writing to those who are being persecuted. In a sense, he's reminding them that this is not their final destination. In other words, they must not see things with a here and now type of understanding. Sometimes I think, actually probably more often than not, I think we get wrapped up in the here and now. Our emotions grab a hold of us. Our anxieties grab a hold of us. Our pains grab a hold of us. And they make us go, what do we do with this right now? Whatever screams big and loud, that's what we immediately focus on. And we search for a way to fix it right now or to remove it right now. And we lose focus of the big picture sometimes. So if it's that way for us, imagine if it were a persecution. Imagine if your life were at stake. That's Peter's listeners. If you confess Christ, your life might be at stake. You might lose your family. You might lose all that you have. You might just die. So Peter has to remind them that there is something greater than the here and now. Peter has to remind them that they aren't just low-down, no-good Christians worthy of punishment and death. Their Christian life is worth something. Something bigger than everything that they face. But don't think that this is just some sort of pep talk. Peter's actually drawing on something much bigger than a, hey, this is only a temporary thing speech. Peter's actually going right back to the Old Testament. It's what God told Moses to tell the Israelites after they left Egypt. When Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, God tells Moses to say to the Israelites, and this is found in Exodus chapter 19, Now, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, God continues, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Sounds familiar. What Peter does is to link that special relationship God declared about the Israelites to the Christians, to the converts. The Christians aren't some add-on, some ancillary type of sect. The church is built on the cornerstone of Christ and who we are found in Christ and we who are found in Christ are the Israel of God. The Christians are the people of God. And this really bears testimony with how he continues in verse 10. If you did open your Bibles or your apps, look at verse 10. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, 
but now have obtained mercy. And you may not realize it, but Peter makes a direct connection with these words to the exile of Israel in the Old Testament. Some of you may remember that prophet by the name of Hosea. Hosea was the prophet that God told to go and to marry a prostitute. God wanted him to do it as a lesson that would teach the unfaithfulness and adulterous Israel against the faithful love of God towards Israel. Anyways, Hosea has children with Gomer the prostitute. And here's the name of his two children. Lo-Ruamah and Lo-Amin. The names meaning not having mercy and not a people. I mean, that's great names for children, aren't they? (laughs) But God was proving a point with that. Because later in the prophecy, he says that those who were Lo-Ruamah and those who were Lo-Ami those who had not obtained mercy and those who were not a people would become those who did obtain mercy and were the people of God. And this is what precisely Peter alludes to, actually almost quoting word for word. Peter's drawing on the Old Testament promises of God and all that entails. And he's encouraging his listeners by saying, you indeed are the people of God. You are the ones who have received the mercy of God. You are special and you are holy to him. And while you may be in exile now, God is gathering you into a greater home, into a greater life. So keep your eye on that. Avoid getting wrapped up in the here and now and remember who you are. Don't let the everyday pains, don't let the everyday ups and downs, don't let the everyday stresses, don't let the everyday fears, don't let them take you away from the comfort of knowing that you belong to God in a very special way. Who you are matters. And then based on that reality of who we are in the first half of Peter chapter 2, Peter then goes into what do we do? It matters who you are, and that shapes what you do. As I announced this week, a few of us were up in Dallas at the national church meetings. And as Bishop was speaking during one of the meetings, he said something that I had to jot down, knowing what I was going to preach on already. And he said this, A personal encounter with someone changes your paradigm in life. A personal encounter with someone changes your paradigm in life. It changes your M.O., your way of looking and acting in life. An example is that of two people falling in love. Once two people encounter each other with a special relationship, it changes their whole world. It changes how they think. It changes what they prioritize. It changes how they feel. It changes what they do. And that is the same with a personal encounter and relationship with God. Being in relationship with God must mean a change in your life's paradigm. And so Peter, after telling us what he does in verses 9 and 10, he goes on to tell us in the next two verses about how what we do matters. Let's look at verse 11. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Peter 
picks up that same theme that Paul presents in his well-known chapter from Galatians 5 about the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. Paul says, if we've been risen with Christ by the Spirit, then let us also walk by the Spirit. Peter says here, if you're the holy people of God, if you are that special people whom God has called to be his own, then we need to care that we live that way. The truth of the matter is, is that there are certain behaviors. There are certain ways of thinking. There are certain things that literally take their toll on the soul. There are things that infect and erode the spiritual health of our soul. I mean, if you give in to drunkenness, if you give in to pornography... If you give in to that affair, if you give in to that anger, if you give in to that workplace jesting, if you give in to that seemingly pleasurable sin, if you give in to repaying evil for evil, if you give in to all of those types of things, and I could list a whole bunch more because Paul does, what are you really doing? You're warring against the health of your soul. Or express it another way. How can you be angry and at the same time be grateful? How can you love your spouse and embody the love between Christ and his bride, the church is the example, while at the same time finding comfort in the arms of another? How can you keep yourself pure while at the same time engaging in some act like pornography, which is specifically designed to make you lust and act in a certain way? You know, the world says that we should rid ourselves of anything that inhibits what we want to do. Anything that says, I can't do whatever I want to do, anything that says, you're wrong for doing something, well, that's just simply oppressive. And we can't have anything that's oppressive in our lives. So that means we should just purposefully and deliberately give in to our immediate desires. So fulfilling the lusts of the flesh is freedom to the world and is really seen as that which saves the soul. But Peter tells us the exact opposite. What Jesus taught, what Paul taught, and what Peter expressed is that the fulfilling of our lusts, as enjoyable as they may be to the flesh for a moment, actually endanger and injure our soul. They injure our relationship in life with God. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. But Peter isn't quite done yet here. I'm almost done, but Peter isn't. So I have to at least mention what Peter says after this. Peter will move in one quick stroke of the pen from that individualistic aspect of our own soul, of how what we do matters to our own soul, to how it also impacts others, even those who don't believe. Look at verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Did you catch that quick stroke of the pen? They may by your works which they see glorify God. That sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? 
Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. You know, God works in such a funny way. Here he is, the omnipotent guy in the sky who can do anything, who knows everything, and can change the hearts of everyone with a flick of the finger. But yet that's not what he chooses to do. It's what I would choose to do, I think. Snap, boom, it's all fixed. But that's not what he wants. What he wants is to share himself with us so that we can share him through us. He wants to share himself with us so that we can share him through us. He wants us to participate in the work of bringing others to praise him. And that's done not just through the mindless obedience to God through a checklist of keeping commandments. It's done through our character. Where the very character of God is embodied in our actions. Where who we are shines and influences through what we do. And I think that's what Peter is driving at with that one word in there. One translation says conduct, another translation says behavior, King James says conversation. Really, it's about godly character expressed in how you act, regardless of any circumstances. And that's what Peter says matters. You have an opportunity to be the embodiment of God to the world. How's that for a weighty responsibility? But it's true. And yet it's a privilege. It's a privilege and an honor to know that through us, others will bring glory to God. What we do matters. Peter began this whole passage by saying, I beseech you. And I like that word, beseech. It's not just an older word. It has such a weighty aspect to it. It's so much weightier than, I ask you, or I hope you will, or please listen to me. This is literally a passioned plea, a begging, as the New King James says it. I beseech you with an all-my-heart type of desire. And you can understand why Peter beseeches them and why he beseeches us. Because ultimately, as the people of the living God, who you are, really matters. And what you do matters. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.